Doug said, I've been invited back uh, my fifth time. Uh, most of the time, I'm not even invited back the second time. <laughs> so it's really great to see all of you. For those of you that are new, I do uh, lead and have led for, I think, about 15, 16 years now, the Center for Cultural Leadership. It's a Christian think tank. Somebody asked, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Actually, uh, it's a group of uh, Christian thinkers whose goal is to influence other believers to influence the culture in distinctively Christian ways, according to the Word of God. Our view is, and I think the Bible teaches that, that not just our individual lives and our families and our churches, but the entire society and world should be shaped by the truths of God's revelation and his word. And because we're so secular and pagan today, we have to think really hard about how to do that, studying the word of God and applying it. So that's what CCL is, is all about. You can talk to more, more afterwards if you'd like. Um, I'd like to open, uh, have us open our Bibles today to probably the easiest text in the Bible to find. Genesis 1-1. Now, if you can't find Genesis 1-1, we're in trouble. I think even if you didn't really know anything about the Bible, and you knew what Genesis meant, which is beginning or beginnings, you could probably find Genesis 1-1. So that is our text today. And I'm speaking on the topic of creational normativity or norms. Now that might sound a little sophisticated, but it's pretty easy to understand, and I'll explain it in a moment. But let's look at that text, which most of you have, I'm sure, memorized. You probably didn't intentionally memorize it, but you've heard it so much that you know the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are given not just to satisfy our curiosity about the origins of the universe. They certainly do that. They tell us how everything got here. But in addition to that, they lay out God's norms. If I can use this language, they lay out his operating system for the cosmos, for the universe. We often don't think about that. We think, oh, it's wonderful that we know how everything got here. But in telling us how everything got here, how God made everything, he also tells us this kind of structure of the universe. He's given us almost, as it were, um, an owner's manual. <laughs> and in a sense, we are under God. We humans, as I'll point out in a minute, are under God, the owner's certainly the subordinate owners of this universe. So he gives us in his word a, a manual on how we're to operate within it. We don't often think that way, but that's the way it is. Um, you know, many Christians, when they think about Genesis 1 and 2, only think about it with reference to the creation-evolution debate, and that is important. But it's more than that. 
it lays out these norms, if I can use that expression, the normativity. In other words, the way things need to be, the way God designed for things to be, originally is established in the book of Genesis. I think before I mention these, and we'll have to go through them pretty quickly, it's important to understand that you can't get Genesis wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. That's one you might want to write down or remember. You can't get Genesis wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. Somebody asks, what is the Bible all about? Well, we might immediately and reflectively answer, well, it's about Jesus. And that is true. But it's not wholly and entirely true. To understand about Jesus, we really need to understand what's going on in the book of Genesis. You can't get Genesis wrong and the rest of the Bible right. So what are some of these norms? There are seven of them, and we'll go through these really quickly, and I hope to even save time for, for a few questions. The first of these norms, the first aspect of the operating system, is the creator-creature distinction. The distinction, the creator-creature distinction, which we see right there in chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible teaches that God stands above creation. He's not dependent on creation. He's not conditioned by creation. He's not sort of in process along with it, as though creation sort of is changing and God's changing right along with it, as though God were very young and now God's getting very old as the world is getting old. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, he certainly is intimately involved in creation, but understand this, a fundamental premise of the Christian faith and of the truth of the universe is this truth, that God is separate from creation. They're not all part of one big system. Now, the ancient pagans believed in, um, many of them at least, in the great chain of being. You may have heard of an idea in pagan cultures, totemism, that you had uh, the greatest God, maybe an impersonal God at the top of this long chain, as it were, and then there were lower gods, And then there were spirits, we would say like angels and devils. And then there's man, then the higher animals, and the farther you go down, the lower animals, and then you get down to the plant. And all of these sort of share in being. And the farther you go down, the less godness there is. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, As Peter Jones pointed out, really there are only two ways of looking at this. There's the one-ism, or oneist way, and the two-ist way. One-ism is the pagan way that we all sort of share in God's being, and creation shares in God's being. Now, is any of this sounding a little familiar? You say, Andrew, maybe that's not just ancient pagans that hold that. There is a movement today that really holds this. It's a prominent and growing movement, and it's called what, you know? The New Age movement, or similar movements, hold this view. We're seeing a rise in paganism today. It's oneist. Everything participates in God, as it were. And the trees are God, and the animals are God, and we are God. And there is a God somewhere else out there. And we're all sort of God. That's the premise of a lot of environmentalism. 
But Jones points out the biblical faith is always twoist. There are two. There is God, the sovereign God who created everything, and there's a second, and that is the rest of creation. So that, I must move on quickly, is the first norm, the creator-creature distinction. Now the second distinction is in chapter 1, verse 26. And for time, I won't read this, but you may want to write that down. Most of you know it. The second one is the image of God. Man created, man alone created in the image of God. In Latin, some of you may have heard, it's called the Imago Dei. Now, what does that mean, that man is created in the image of God? Well, the traditional explanation is that man reflects divine qualities. That man is sort of like God in certain ways. Now, theologians talk about Don't you love these sort of long expressions that theologians have? And you think, why can't they just make it simpler? The communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Because it's important for this point. The communicable attributes of God are those attributes that God has absolutely, but that we also can have in a creaturely way. I mean, like reason. God has reason. I mean, God can think. He's a spirit, but he can think. Well, we can too. And God uh, is immortal. Now, he's eternal, but we can be immortal and live forever. And God is a God of love, and we can love. And he can commune with us, and we can commune with him. So these are attributes of God that we too can participate in. Not in an absolute way like God, but nonetheless in a creaturely way. But then there are the incommunicable attributes. For instance, omnipotence. What does omnipotence mean? It's not really hard. God is omnipotent. That means he's what? All-powerful. Well, can you, buy, can you be all-powerful? I certainly hope not. Or omniscient, all-knowing, or omnipresent, everywhere present. We can't be like God in that way, so those are incommunicable attributes. Well, some people believe that these communicable attributes are kind of a reflection of the image of God. That's what it means to be created in God's image. But if you read the book of Genesis, it doesn't quite say that. It doesn't say that those virtues are the image of God. If you read in Genesis 1.26, you'll see basically right after it talks about man being created in the image of God, it says two things. First, God made them male and female, Genesis chapter 1. Did you notice that? Let us make man, verse 26, in our image according to our likeness and let them... Now, when he says them, it's interesting because we go to chapter 2 and we find out that it's not just a male, but who else was created in God's image? The female, of course, the woman. And then the next thing he says in verse 26 is let them have what? Dominion over all of creation. So it seems that the Im- according to the text of scripture it seems that the image of God in man is first the male and female, the distinction of male and female humans, and second, this calling to exercise dominion. And in my view, that is essentially what the image of God in man is. Now that leads to the very and I must move on leads to that third norm. So let's review. The first is the creator-creature distinction. The second is the image of God in man. The third is the male-female distinction in chapter 2, verse 18. Um, 
I love the way that Herman Bovink, a writer some of you might have heard of, begins his book, The Christian Family. It's a little book. I hope you can read it. The Christian Family. You can get more information about it from your pastor. But he begins his book this way. The history of the human race begins with a wedding. Isn't that beautiful? The history of the human race begins with a wedding. Do you understand that according to the book of Genesis, to be male or female is part of what it means to be made in God's image. But the full reflection of the divine image cannot be seen without both male and female. Both are necessary. You need both the man and the woman looking at both of them to see the reflection of God's image. One writer put it this way, and I, boy, this is a very thoughtful thing. God could have made a thousand males, a thousand males for Adam to commune with, and he still couldn't have created a reflection of his image. He had to create a female to be created in God's image. What a beautiful truth. We also understand from this passage, because of this, that God alone wasn't sufficient for Adam. You remember God says in this passage, it's not good for man to be what? But, but wait a minute. If we think about that, we're thinking, well, Adam wasn't alone. He had God to fellowship with. I mean, sometimes here, well, we don't really need other people. I mean, it's just you and God, and that alone is enough. But on the authority of the book of Genesis, I say that's not true. That's not true. Adam was still alone. Because he had God. But remember, because of the creator-creature distinction, God is not like man. Now, man reflects God, but God is not like man. He says that. Have you read that in the Bible? Who am I that I am like you, Jehovah said. And so Adam, the male, needed the female, someone like him, distinguished from him, distinct from him, but nonetheless, in many ways, like him, to fully reflect the image of God. He needed a perfect counterpart. In fact, the woman is designed with the very traits that man is lacking. Now, I want you to think about the implications of that. God created the woman with the very traits that the man is lacking, so he would need her. In fact, it is actually quite true to say that when God brought Eve to Adam, Adam quite literally met his match. He met his match. That's why marriage is such a beautiful thing. And it's being attacked today, and it's being undermined today. And it's utterly destructive of the family and the church and the entire culture. Because marriage is a beautiful thing. Understand, marriage is a part of the creation. It is a creation ordinance, a creation norm. Now, if you young folks understand this, singleness is not... Understand that point. Now, God does specifically, we read in the New Testament, call some specific people to singleness, being wholly devoted to God. But that is not a creational norm. The normal, ordinary course of events is to get married. According to God, marriage is a beautiful thing. You say, but Andrew, there are so many divorces and broken marriages today and people are afraid. But the fact that there's sin doesn't negate marriage. 
Marriage is a beautiful and holy and good and wholesome institution. And it is a permanent feature of God's cosmology. By cosmology, I mean how he structured the universe. Just like gravity, just like gravity is a physical law, so marriage is a spiritual and relational law of the universe. It's not a social construction. You know, liberals like to talk about that. Well, it could have happened differently. It's just way back when people decided to institute marriage, man. And so it's not necessary. We could have a world without marriage. Actually, you couldn't. You couldn't. If there were no marriage, the world would fail. And we know from the word of God, the world won't fail. And therefore, marriage is going to be around for a long, long time. It's been around for a long time, and it's going to be around for a long time. I must move on. Fourth, the fourth norm of creation is the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. There in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Man and woman's calling is to exercise dominion, oversight, over creation. It's almost as though God deputized, he deputized man and woman to oversee and care for his creation. Now God is sovereign. He could have directly, he could have directly exerted dominion. I mean, he could do that now if he wanted to, but he chose not to do that. As it were, he took the badge of authority, his own divine authority, under his authority, of course, and placed it on man and woman, and so your responsibility is to oversee and exercise dominion over all of creation. Now, I must say, this is a big part of the plot of the Bible, and redemption, what Christ has done for us, is the subplot. Now, you might step back and scratch your head. Wait a minute, Andrew. I thought the Bible was all about what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Oh, and and the resurrection. And oh, yes, it is. And it's vital. But understand, the great storyline of the Bible, and this is something you might want to write down, is, it's very simple. Creation, fall, redemption. If somebody comes to you sometime and says... Could you just very quickly tell me what the Bible is all about? I mean, it's in the elevator. We're going up three floors, and you have to tell me what the Bible's all about. say, well, that's not a very long time. But if you have only a short time, you could say the Bible and the Christian faith are all about creation, fall, redemption. Understand, God created this wonderful world for his glory. He created man and woman to love one another and to bear children and to exercise dominion. But Satan entered, and he spoiled creation. Didn't destroy creation, but spoiled creation. So then God decided to do what? To send his own son, his precious son, to shed his blood on the cross, to die in our place, substitutionary atonement, and rise again. But to what goal? To what end? Now if we say, well, I mean, he died on the cross to take us to heaven. But that's not quite what the Bible says. It's certainly true. We will be with the Lord in the eternal state. The the heavens will come down to the earth and God will dwell with man on a new heavens and a new earth. But what are we saying by saying that? That God's goal is essentially to restore the creation that was spoiled and lost. To restore it and even enhance it for his glory. 
So in redemption, in Christ's death on the cross, in trusting in Jesus Christ, God's goal is to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden. To restore and recreate, as it were. To bless this glorious creation that he made. And I would say then that sin perverts, but it doesn't abolish this urge to cultural dominion. And if you want to know why there is all this conflict in the world today, it's because you basically have two kinds of people in the world. Did you know that? Two kinds of people. There are those who serve and worship the Creator, and those who worship and serve the creation, believers and unbelievers. And here's the key. Both of them are exercising dominion. You see, it's it's placed within us to be culture-creating people. And so when we sin, we don't sit down and say, or when we turn away from God and apostatize, we don't sit down and say, we're not going to work in culture anymore. No. Instead of making godly movies, we make ungodly movies. Instead of godly music, we make ungodly music. Godly architecture? No. Ungodly architecture. Instead of godly sexuality, we have ungodly sexuality. And right on down the line. What I've just described to you is the great conflict. Because you have two kinds of people who are both exercising dominion, but doing it in very separate ways. One honoring the Lord and one not. And then next, fifth, and I must move on quickly. This fifth norm is the Sabbath. The Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Now, when we think of the Sabbath, we often think of all of the fights among Christians over Sabbatarianism, right? Well, do we observe the Sabbath today? And if we observe the Sabbath... Uh, Has the day changed? Most Christians believe, and I do, that the early church met clearly on Sunday. So we don't agree with our Seventh-day Adventist friends, many of whom I do believe are, are true Christians, who nonetheless meet on Saturday. Or has Sunday replaced the Sabbath? That's a little different view that many Presbyterians hold. Or some people, I know this may sound strange, observe both, Saturday and Sunday. Well, whatever your view may be on that, and I'm not going to really talk about that today, unfortunately, because of all of these debates, people miss the grander normative significance of the Sabbath. And I wish I could spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to just mention two aspects of the Sabbath that are woven into the universe. One is this, leisure or rest follows work, it doesn't precede work. Right? As you read, isn't it amazing? So God worked for six days, and isn't that remarkable? Did God have to do it that way? He could have made everything perfectly, instantaneously, but he didn't. Because he himself was creating a pattern for us, created in his image. So he worked for six days, and then the Bible says that God did what on the seventh day? Now, it can't mean that God got really tired. Oh man, it's a really tough job creating the universe. And I'm starting to, I say it reverently, sweat a little bit. I just need to sit down and rest. That's not quite what it means. It means that God was active and he did his work and he said, now it's time for the work to stop and for there to be a day day of rest. Now we live in a leisure-obsessed world, don't we? 
TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. It's terrible. I got to get up every Monday morning. The worst thing. And I have a terrible week. And then I'm panting to get to Friday at 5 o'clock so I can really start living my life. There is nothing whatsoever Christian about that attitude. The work is difficult because of the curse. It nonetheless should be a joy for the people of God. And then leisure should be a joy. In other words, rest is a reward for work. We need to teach our children that, by the way. Rest is the reward for work. Oh, by the way, I'm going to say this quickly. Uh, Work is not the result of the fall. Now think about that. Man was called to exercise dominion even before the fall. That took a lot of work. So even if there were never a fall, guess what? We'd still have to work. Now, it would be easier because there wouldn't be the curse. So the notion, well, man's perfect life is the life of leisure when he's just sort of sitting back, sitting back on the couch, eating bonbons and watching TV. That is the godly perfect life. No, according to the Bible, work is a good and a holy life. And then comes rest. And then second, and I just mentioned this quickly, the Sabbath indicates a linear view of time and history. That is, that it's pressing toward an end. Notice the sequence. God works six days, and then there's the rest. According to the book of Hebrews, that Sabbath is actually a picture of the final Sabbath rest of eternity. Pagans have a cyclical view of history. We just keep going through the same things over and over again. And civilizations rise and fall. And all we can look forward to is good times and then bad times and then good times. And that's not Christian. That's not Christian. The biblical approach, the Christian view, and thank God for it, is that we are moving toward a predestined end. God is in sovereign control of history. And despite great difficulties and hardships, God will fulfill his good will. And then I want to mention uh, the sixth norm. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, the goodness of creation. The goodness of creation. So God saw every day what he did and he delivered a verdict. God saw what he had done and he said this, it is very, it is good. And then at the very end, he looked at the entire creation And he delivered his final verdict on creation, and it is that it is very good. Now, that doesn't mean that creation was to remain static, that man wasn't to work to enhance creation for God's glory, but it does mean creation itself is very good. This means there's no defect in creation. You see all this evil in the world today? Would you like to know what caused that evil? It's not because creation's bad. It's because man is bad. It's because of sin. Now here's a glorious truth to understand about this. The world, the cosmos, was created for man. Was created for man. God first built this beautiful, opulent mansion, and then he created man to occupy the mansion, you see? Environmentalists often have it all wrong. They say, well... We just sort of, we need to be careful here because we're sharing. We're sharing the world with our friends, the plants and animals. Wrong. Wrong. We're to treat them well, according to God's word, but we're not merely sharing the world. 
Understand that man and woman are God's governors in the world. And this is something vital to understand. If there were no man, there could be no world. You see these apocalyptic stories about the world just going on without man, or at one time, the world was without man. That's false. God created this world for man. Well, Andrew, that just sounds a little proud. Well, I don't care how it sounds. That's the word of God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not just a great privilege. That's also a great responsibility. We're called to exercise dominion. This also implies that sin cannot undo creation. Let's go back to this beautiful, opulent mansion. You know what sin did? As it were, a man comes in and he takes a spray paint and he graffitis the mansion. And he gets a sledgehammer and he, he cracks holes in the walls. He goes over and gets a very heavy pneumatic drill and tries to undo the foundation. And he just makes it look really bad. But you know what? God doesn't let him destroy the mansion. And would you like to know what redemption is? Redemption is God renovating the mansion and making it look good again. God decided not to build a new mansion. The creation is very good, and he's going to keep it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I want you to understand, this world and all of these norms are beautiful and holy things. God's not going to get rid of them. Redemption is restoring them to a very high and holy place. That's a great truth. And then finally, so we'll have time for questions, the seventh norm is the fruitfulness of creation. Notice in Genesis 1.12, God commands humanity, in verse 26, to be fruitful, and he creates animals and plants to be self-perpetuating. Did you ever notice through there, and we won't read the text, it said that he created this plants and animals to continue after its kind. After its kind. By the way, that refutes the theory of biological evolution. After its kind. I mean, animals come from specific animals. Lions come from lions. Lions do not come from dogs, right? That refutes evolution. So, but and here's the fundamental point that I want to make. There is this inherent self-perpetuation under God's authority. So, your pastor's daughter is going to be having any day now identical twin boys. Now, you know what God, you know what God decided not to do? He decided not to directly create. He could have done that. But he placed it within man and woman to have this fruitfulness to get married for the woman to be impregnated in a holy way by the man and for them to bring children into the world. What a beautiful, glorious thing. So, childbearing, childbearing is a creational norm. Now, I want you to write that down. Those of you here that are younger, share this truth, and I'll be happy to talk with you about it afterwards. Yes, the Bible does teach that sometimes God closes the womb. He opens the womb and he closes the womb according to his sovereign authority. But as there was a front page story, I think it was 2013 in Time Magazine, it spoke of um, the child-free marriage of couples getting together with and intentionally and intentionally not having children because, I mean, children are inconvenient to the good life. Now, good thing their parents didn't say that, of course. 
Well, understand this. For uh, a couple to get married and determine and to determine that they will never have children is, according to the Word of God, a sin. I am not saying that maybe there we might not be a good reason to delay having children. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying on the authority of the Word of God for you to say, we're going to get married, but we're intentionally not going to have children in this marriage, if you're able to have children. We're not talking about, obviously, those that are much older. But if we're able to have children and we're not going to have them, that is a sin. That's contrary to God's norm. Because one of the principal reasons that God created marriage is so that man and woman would be fruitful. One reason for that is that this earth is a big place, and what, what's man called to do? To exercise dominion. It takes a lot of people to do that. So understand this point. Um, a large population, a large population is not a curse to the earth. It's a blessing to the earth. Because God loves humans. He loves those made in his image. And when little children are born, I want you to understand this. When Doug and Melinda's little twins, what a delight. God, it's a delight to God's heart. Children are a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord, and a blessing from the Lord. And that, I'm suggesting to you, is not just a good idea. That's one of God's creational norms that he wove into the very structure of the universe. So, time for about a couple of questions. Let's review those. What are these creational norms? One, the creator-creature distinction, the image of God, the male-female distinction, the cultural mandate, the Sabbath, the goodness of creation, and the fruitfulness of creation. Now, to apostate man who wants to legalize same-sex marriage and to clone humans and to sell female eggs and to play before work and to refuse to bear children and to worship nature, to those apostates, God says to them, if you like that, go build your own universe. But as long as you live in my universe, you're going to have to do it according to my norms. And understand this, if people violate, as they do, these norms, they can radically mess up the world. Just like you could radically mess up your life if you try to defy gravity. But you can't really overturn it. Because we live in a God-rigged universe, and God's ways will prevail. Okay, I think we've got about five minutes for questions or comments. Yes, sir? Uh, much is made of the, how divided our country is today. Um, but my question is, do you think this divide is between those who know God and those who don't? And is it necessarily a bad thing that we're so divided? Good question. Excellent question. Um, we're really divided today, and is that divide basically the divide between those who know God and those who don't, and is it a bad thing? I would say there's the, the one great divide historically between Christians and non-Christians, but it is certainly true that there are Christians who are divided also. I think in our country, largely, not exclusively, the divide is between... Um, secular slash pagan elites, they generally live along the coasts in the major cities, and people who live in Kansas <laughs> and Oklahoma, and even, believe it or not, where I live in California, not along the coast, but up in the mountains, 
that is, that's not the exclusive divide, but that is a big divide in our country today. People who believe that they should capture the levers of the state to create what they think is the good society and impose it on everybody else. Those people generally think that they're much smarter than everybody in this room and that you basically are dumb, and they know better for, uh, than you do what is good for your life. Now, that's not the biblical approach. The biblical view is each of us must give account of himself to God and should work out our own salvation, in Paul's language, in fear and trembling. And that, yes, pastors should have oversight, and political leaders, few though they may be, should have the right kind of oversight. But the notion of dictating everybody else's life is given to God and nobody else. We train up children so that they'll be self-governing. So self-government is the main government in the Scripture. I think to the extent that this divide shows underlying problems in the country, it's good for us to see that divide and to see what's going on. And to that extent, I think the effects aren't always good, but it's good at least to see it. Are there other questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. That is, I don't know how many people don't understand that vital theological truth. Yes, creativity certainly is an attribute of God. And we can't really exert this stewardship, this dominion, without creativity. And let's just take painting. I mean, you look at the paintings of, let's take an apostate painter. Have you any of you had the misfortune of seeing Picasso's paintings? <laughs> Most of them are terrible. He was a terribly perverted man. Well, because of that, out of his evil heart, and came from his evil hand, the hand is inherently evil, but he gave it for evil purposes, this evil art. And you have Rembrandt and others historically that produce very beautiful art and God-honoring, and not just in painting, but all these other things. I mean, who is the greatest painter in the universe better than God? And you see, I mean, if you just look at nature, and remember this, right now it's under a curse. Imagine what it's going to look like when the curse is removed. We'll be stunned and staggered by it. So yes, creativity. Godly creativity is a beautiful and powerful thing. Time for one more question or comment, perhaps. I'll just briefly say yes. the same lines with Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. So those of you here that are young, and as God... Uh, blesses you, get married, and have children. Children are a wonderful, beautiful, holy thing. One more question or comment before we stop? All right. Shall we close in prayer? Thank you, Father, that we can learn from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 some of these creational norms, your operating system for your cosmos, your universe that you created. Lord, we live in a time when in one way or another, all of these norms, all of them, are under attack by secularists and pagans. Thank you, O oh God, that they will not ultimately succeed. But Lord, give us the strength to stand up for these norms and for your truth and to live according to them 
and teach them to our children and glory in them and glory in your creation because it is so beautiful and so it's so true to your nature. Bless now the worship that is to follow. We pray it follow. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen.